So it's fair to say without the scholarship program in Vision 2030, your professional dreams wouldn't have really been realized. They were sort of big breaks for you just in terms of the like just big policy changes that sort of enabled you to to do what you want to do for a living to like, you know, pursue your dream. Absolutely. Two years before I came back to the kingdom, I cannot even enter the ministry where I worked at. But with the change, like everything has has been, you know, um, I, I would have, I studied the architecture and I studied urban design, but I didn't have, um, I didn't, I wasn't sure 100% that I would be able to practice in Saudi, even though I was fascinated with urbanism because of the, the struggles we have in Saudi Arabia, because of, I've seen our cities, I lived in our cities and I know, oh my God, now that this could be resolved through something, which is urbanism basically. Um, yeah, I'm very thankful. <laughs> This is the 966. This is the 966, episode 49, Richard. Uh, halfway. Almost halfway. Let's celebrate it next one. We'll celebrate the next episode. It'll We're be almost thing. to the next episode, which would be 50, yes. Um, 50 out of a, a forthcoming 2000 is pretty good. Um, oh, that's oh, the goal. Yeah, oh, <laughs> just a thunderbolt, uh, a lightning bolt of anxiety just crushing oh. right through us. <laughs> well, the backstory on this one, of course, is that we've we've had to re we're, we've been d- dancing and jiggering because uh, the thunderbolt reference. Well, I lost power, so we're sort of doing it late. This is the this is behind the scenes at the nine six six. So the, exciting! The nine six six has its own sausage making factory. It's lamb sausage, and what our <laughs> guests and our listeners are hearing is that. Soon we're going to be getting to our really incredible conversation with Day Al-Daiwan. Day is an architect and urban planner based in Riyadh, who is head of the Center for Development of Urban Design and Planning of Saudi Cities, and has her own architecture and design firm in the kingdom, works with McKinsey. Just an awesome conversation with Day. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. We'll also talk about all the official comings and goings in the kingdom recently, a little bit more about the stuff going on in the U.S.-Saudi relationship you may have heard about. We'll finish it up, as always, with Yella, six top storylines from the week. Really quickly before we get started, Yella. we love Yella. We love all the feedback we're getting, comments on our YouTube pages, especially all the chatter, uh, suggested guests, opinions that people share with us. We read it all. We see them all. We just ask that you be civil to the other commentators. You can pretty much say whatever you want to us. We have pretty th- thick skin, but just be civil to everybody else. We don't want to have to go in there and delete comments that are rude. So, uh yeah, Richard, let's get and going. <laughs> as a public service, I guess we should notify in advance that one of the yellows is on golf. Is it? Oh, yes, it is. It is. Yes. <laughs> public service. So if you're yes. so excited about that, just jump ahead on the YouTube page right to the golf segment. And, uh, <laughs> and if not, <laughs> <laughs> Richard, what's your one big thing this week? Um, as we've discussed, I'll rehash it, um, but it uh, just to try and Add a little more context from the from the perspective of Mohammed bin Salman, President Joe Biden will visit Saudi Arabia July 15, 16, uh, when he will meet with Prince, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. For the Biden administration, at least, this signals that Mohammed bin Salman is, in terms of optics anyway, officially in from the cold. I, I thought it'd be worthwhile to, to just take a look, because this caps quite a diplomatic 18 months for Mohammed bin Salman, MBS a period in which uh, circumstances, strategy, tactics, and the overwhelming imperative, we've seen this from the U.S. side, 
of national interest on the part of numerous foreign countries that have resulted in MBS transitioning from essentially a, a, a defensive diplomatic crouch in the post-Khashoggi uh, period uh, to becoming a regional leader and a global player. This has been an interesting transition. So let's look quickly at the timeline. 18 months ago, January 2021, Saudi Arabia hosted the Alula conference that ended the, the, the dispute with Qatar, uh, that, which had begun in 2017. Uh, it, later in 2021, in December, MBS visited Qatar to sort of affirm the Alula conference and that things were back on track intra-DCC in terms of communication and cooperation. Um, that same month, Saudi Arabia hosted Amal Macron, president of France. Uh, in March 2022, Boris Johnson came to town. In April 2022, Recep Erdogan came to town for the first time since 2017. Again, all meeting with MBS. Also in April, Saudi Arabia put in place a new leadership council to represent Yemen and, and, and at the same time reached the truce with the Houthis, which has since been extended. Um, during this period, any number of Arab heads of state came to came to met with MBS or came to, to Saudi Arabia. That includes President Sisi of Egypt, Prime Minister Makani of Lebanon. Um, so now MBS is on a tour, Egypt, Jordan, Turkey, Greece, and Cyprus. When he returns, he'll convene a GCC plus event to feature President Joe Biden, which will include all six of the GCC heads of state, which as we noted, GCC is back in sync, communicating, you know, the, the, you know, they've been coordinating and, 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 pre-planning for this visit. So they're very much insane. Um, included with the GCC heads of states will be heads of state representatives from Iraq, Jordan, Egypt, and probably Morocco. I mentioned this last time. Uh, and by the way, MBS probably would have visited Iraq on this current tour if a government was in place. It's a little bit in disarray in Iraq, not particularly useful at this time to go there. Um, the notable aspect of this current tour is it is essentially a king-making exercise. King Salman is in declining health. I mean, uh, this is an opportunity for MBS to show his diplomatic chops and take an active leadership role in the region. Um, and this is especially the case because he has prioritized efforts to align policies among this increasingly strong Arab bloc. So, um, you know, of the Arab states, so for example, of the Arab states scheduled to meet with Biden in July, Saudi Arabia will now, as I mentioned, you know, be very much in sync with the GCC partners. is is increasingly close as is is sort of refreshing and updating relations with Morocco after a little rough patch. Um, but MBS will have just met with the Egyptian and Georgian heads heads of state who are in town for that meeting. Um, so they'll have their ducks in a row, and no small no small part due to Saudi Arabian MBS leadership. So it's quite a change from just eighteen months ago. Um, I should add here, uh, apart from this perceived strategic advantage for Saudi Arabia to increasingly triangulate its foreign policy between the United States, China, and Russia, uh, there was significant goodwill engendered during this period. You notice when I went down those heads of state that were coming to town or, or, or meeting with MBS, Macron, Boris Johnson, Rachel Erdogan, I didn't mention a couple others. And that's because uh, in February 2019, Xi Jinping hosted MBS in, in China. 
And uh, in June 2019, Vladimir Putin very publicly shook hands with MBS at the G20 summit in Osaka and then came to Saudi Arabia to meet with him October 29th. I add that because um, apart from this tour that MBS is going on, and, but we look at, you know, and, and Saudi Arabia is making choices about this triangulation, it's hedging its best for the U.S., and we can't go in depth there. But I think it's useful to point out in terms of how goodwill is perceived that while MBS was out in the cold in the U.S., he was hosted in, in China by Xi Jinping. And, you know, Vladimir Putin came to town to, to meet with him. Uh, you know, when we asked the question about why Saudi Arabia is, is hedging, there's, there's not only strategic and tactical and economic reasons, but I think there's also, you know, some personal things here. But anyway, the point being is this has been an extraordinary 18 months for, for MBS. And like I said, from, one from a sort of a defensive crouch at the beginning of, still at the beginning of 2021, to a point here where he is, he's doing a, a tour and will be meeting with the U.S. president and in a very strong and publicly uh, active leadership role for the Arab world and for the GCC states in that region in general. There's also a very strong economic, and you mentioned it, but there's a very strong economic reason for MBS's visit to each of these three countries. Um, really just a lot of Saudi money going into Egypt, Jordan, and Turkey, and each had its own reason to warm up to Saudi Arabia to host MBS. Um, Jordan's economy is in a weak spot, needs investment. Egypt's economy, food prices are soaring, inflation is out of control, needs deals with, the, with Saudi Arabia. Turkey, same deal, uh, soaring inflation, big visit from MBS, a, a thaw in Turkey-Saudi relations, it really has been a remarkable 18 months. It's, 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 I think, very smart that you put it that way because you need to take a very broad, uh, broad lens to see it that way. And, you know, 18 months seems like a really long time in today's, you know, yesterday is old news environment. And yeah, I think very well said, Mr. Wilson. It's, uh, it has been quite the turnaround. Yeah, it has. And it's not, and there's a bit of good luck involved. I mean, I mentioned circumstances, strategy, strategy, tactics, and the imperative of national interest in, in, uh, in terms of other countries. You're exactly right. I mean, Egypt has, has really been hit hard by grain prices. Jordania, Jordan's been struggling. And uh, Turkey, obviously, uh, we've talked about Turkey, is hit by inflation and a, and a sagging economy. And, of course, there was a, the unofficial boycott for most of 2021, so yes, you're right. That's a good. That's a spot on. These countries have um, significant interest in having strong economic and having Saudi Arabia being involved financially with their economies. It's a good thing, and that's Saudi Arabia has some money to spend. It's especially important for Egypt, and you know, and we'll talk about later. I think in Ayala, um, the Egyptian relationship is exceptionally important to Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia wants to make sure that Egypt is is stable and um, and is able to be a, a, a cooperative and strong working partner. Egypt is very important to Saudi Arabia. Richard, you and I both really love looking at the photos from the Saudi press agency of really just anything because they have, you know, 50 or 100 photos that come out every day and it's a really good lens into the kingdom. Um, not a very well-known lens into the kingdom. You and I see it every single day. The you photos from you, I, I do, yeah. You're an amazing <laughs> troller of that, that, that source. <laughs> Uh, I live there, <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was really interesting seeing the body language of the visit of, of uh, 
Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman to Jordan, to Egypt, to Turkey. I mean, in Turkey, Erdogan and MBS hugged. They embraced after MBS got off the plane. Um, it was just very warm. You could see that. It wasn't very formal or stiff. I mean, there was obviously the pomp and circumstance that always accompanies such a, a state visit, but it was very warm and it sort of was indicative of where things are with the relationship. I'm not sure we'll see that level of warmth when President Biden <laughs> visits Riyadh, or sorry, excuse me, visits Jeddah July 15th through 16th, but um, just really interesting to sort of look into that and yeah, I mean, very good point. 18 months uh, can really change a lot in the world, as we all have seen. Yeah, it has here. <laughs> Indeed. Richard, my one big thing this week, we've talked a lot about the U.S.-Saudi relationship a good bit in recent weeks with President Biden's planned visit to Saudi Arabia July 15th through 16th. Last week, we really tackled the visit and all the drama, criticism, but also the opportunities. Great discussion. We say modestly, and you can watch that on YouTube. It's up there on the YouTube page right now. So if you just want to listen to that, we sort of break down everything going on with the U.S.-Saudi relationship. Um, and there really is a lot of good stuff out there now from the realist lens, especially about the U.S.-Saudi relationship. We included in our daily news review today a recent item from the Council, for, Council on Foreign Relations, John Alterman at CSIS, Hussein Ibish at Bloomberg. There's just a lot of this stuff coming out now. And really all week we've included insights from both sides of this topic. That's what we do here on the 966 and for subscribers to our free daily newsletter. I'm really jamming this full of plugs, Richard. Anyway, it's an, ama it's an amazing resource. My goodness. <laughs> it really is. It really is. And if you haven't subscribed to it and you're listening to this now in one way or the other, sustg.com, there's a big thing right there that says subscribe. It's totally free. And it comes to you every day. It has literally everything going on with Saudi Arabia it, it, right it, around it, 10 a.m. Eastern time. So Sorry to interrupt. With 20, 000, when 20,000 subscribers across all platforms, you know, you're late to the game. You need yeah. to subscribe. So you better get on of, now. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people really, you know, uh, value it and, and use it every day. Anyway, yeah. sorry, sorry to interrupt. Not at all. No, you're late to the game, but you're not too late. It's not too late to get in. Um, and we uh, appreciate all of our readers. But Richard, my one big thing, thing this week is not the visit itself, but all the things that are happening now with the visit confirmed between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia and both sides gear up for the visit. This is a recurring theme here on the show. And Richard, it actually led me to discover a new word in English. And this is not a su surprise, really, because there are over 170,000 words in use today in English. So wow. it's going to happen. But the word is inosculation. Have you heard of it? <laughs> <laughs> I think I might have had a bout of that recently. <laughs> I think it's I had a bad oyster. The brain, yeah. <laughs> inosculation. <laughs> is a natural phenomenon in which trunks, branches, or roots of two trees grow together in a manner biologically similar to the artificial process of grafting. Oh. Something new every day. And this is what is happening with the U.S. and Saudi Arabia right now. Differences Holy on the surface. Mackerel. Real differences. We never overlook any of them here, as you heard last week. But in fact, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia are two trees experiencing inosculation, especially below the surface with the roots. This can happen again above the surface. Uh, below the surface, though, is when they grow together. The U.S.-Saudi relationship uh, has been exactly that for eight decades. And that's really why it's the length of time. Uh, so much time has passed since the relationship was founded. So it was grown and we talk about all the time, culture, econ uh, the economy, security, defense, all these things. They're so intertwined. Last week, Richard, both you and I attended a very, very good event hosted by our very good friends at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce to discuss opportunities and investment into Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia's ambassador to the United States, Princess Rima bint Bandar, was there and gave some opening remarks, and she was, as she always is, terrific and impressive, as did the second hardest working man in Saudi Arabia, Richard, Dr. <laughs> Majid al-Kasabi. 
acting minister of media and minister of commerce. He must never sleep. It's unbelievable, but really just a great event. And thanks to the U.S. Chamber folks. I just want to throw a shout out here because they're just so good. Uh, Steve Lutz, Kush Chosky, Liz Clark, they're all doing a lot. They are, they're always looking to help. They're such great people. So thank you to them. In addition to that, Khaled Alfala, the Minister of Investment, is also set to visit D.C. in the next week or so. I'm not sure on the exact date, Richard, but it's it's uh, it's happening. Alfala is, of course, the former former Minister of Energy and head of Saudi Aramco, who is now leading Saudi Arabia's drive to attract investment into the kingdom. He will be in Washington in advance of the Biden visit. So, of course, there's a lot of work happening, um, you know, over at the White House and in the administration to prepare for this visit, maximize the deliverables and benefits uh, to President Biden's trip. Uh, and I, as I mentioned earlier, there's a good bit of ink out there being spilled on the visit on all sides, and that's a good thing. So just wrapping this up, lots going on between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia before the visit, in addition to the visit, around the visit, stuff that wouldn't be happening in all likelihood without it, and a chance to get this relationship back on track, producing benefits for both sides. The word of the day? In osculation. <laughs> See, we, this is an educational program. This is edutainment. It's educational and exactly. entertainment. So. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, no, that's uh, excellent. That's very nice, and I agree with you. A shout out to our friends at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. It's a, it, you know, it's the largest chamber of com- commerce chamber in the in the in the U.S. Business Association in the U.S. You know, has uh, has been extremely influential, extremely active, and as you say, the folks we work with over there on the Saudi Saudi uh, program and the Middle East program, <clears throat> Steve Lutz, Kuschowski, you know, Liz Clark. Uh, to you know, repeat what you said. Really high quality uh, people, and we've partnered with them on a number of things, and we always enjoy it. And it's all usually a very successful effort. So, and it's also you know their their effectiveness, their reach, <clears throat> their uh, membership is why the minister of commerce comes to speak with them and meet with them and have a long day conference. It's why the minister of investment comes to meet with them and, and talk with them. They're, they're a tremendous partner for the, for Saudi Arabia. So uh, good on you, U.S. Chamber of Commerce. You're doing good work. Let's now, Richard, get to our conversation with Day Aldaiwan. She's so brilliant. And this is just such a great combo with her learning about sort of how she got into architecture or what she's doing now. She's got a really great role in Saudi Arabia. You guys are going to love this. This is, I was excited about uh, talking with Day. And, um, and you know, when we're talking about urban urban design in Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia is uh, something like 85% urbanized, similar to the U.S. Um, but she points out, I think it's something that's important to note, and I hope you, you get this from this conversation, Saudi Arabia has its own issues, significant as they're dealing with legacy infrastructure issues. But it's fascinating to talk with her because she's right in the heart of this. The thinking, the conceptualizing, and 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 trying to implement it, which is always the hard part. She's is a really infor- informational conversation. I learned a lot. We're very excited to be speaking now with Day Aldawan. Day is an architect and urban planner based in Riyadh, who is head of the Center for Development of Urban Design and Planning of Saudi Cities, and has her own architecture for, and design firm in the kingdom. She has also worked extensively for McKinsey and has therefore had her capable hands directly on helping Saudi Arabia achieve its Vision 2030 goals. Day holds both a Master's of Urban Design and a Master's of Architecture from the Washington University in St. Louis. And Day did her undergrad at SIU Carbondale in Architecture. What an honor, Day. Thank you so much for joining us on the 966. Thanks, Thanks for having me. 
it's wonderful to have it is wonderful to have you today we're really excited about this topic and and i I should mention that we reached you through uh through the skilled speakers program at uh the ministry of media which which you took part in and and i'm sure graduated with 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 flying honors um during our conversation uh dr majid al kasabi is actually dr majid al kasabi who was a minister of commerce was in town last week and we're delighted from in terms of the 966 that that uh, there's a lot going on in, in terms of relationship, and he is also acting minister of media. And I was, I, I was, I mentioned him that you know we have someone, we have a graduate of your skilled speakers program coming on to nine six six. And then when I mentioned this to you, Day, you you've you've worked with uh, His Excellency Majid Al Kasabe. Right, I did uh, when he was acting minister for Mumra, which is Ministry of Municipal and Rural Affairs. And uh, he was, that was back in when, 2019? Uh, 2019, um, he was with us, or he started with us uh, January of 2019, or sorry, actually December of 2018. Um, And then uh, until February of 2020, so about a year and a few months. As Lucian says, we call uh, Majid al-Kasabi the second hardest working man in Saudi Arabia. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, (laughs) definitely. I had actually forgotten he was acting minister of Umro, but I, that I don't, you know, I'm not surprised in the least. Um, yeah. But Day, let's. How'd you? I was curious, and, and we'll catch up here. But you, you did your undergraduate and graduate work at uh, Washington University in St. Louis. Right. Um, that's an unusual choice. How'd you end up there? Uh, well, um, when I finished my studies in this IU, um, or basically the the last semester in, in SIU is when you start thinking about where do you want to apply for your master's. And I had a list of uh, universities uh, in the U.S. Um, I tried to pick uh, top-ranked uh, university in general, but uh, my criteria was um, to choose a university or a architecture program where their um, uh, focus is uh, on design theory. Uh, mostly because I come from a very technical background studying this IU uh, C uh, in Carbondale. Uh, it was very heavily uh, uh, technical uh, architectural program. The challenge? As they that- say, graduate, they say you graduate from SIU, you know how to put a building together. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I got that covered, but then I have to have the more theoretical uh, approach to architecture. So uh, I'm sure it was challenging. Both are, are good, good institutions. And, uh, and when you finished up there, you came back and you opened up your, your uh, Dale Dumayan architect shop right away? Yes. Yes. Uh, so I, I was working uh, like in 2016 all the way to probably um, mid-2017 to have all the paperwork done. Uh, uh, to have an official uh, office. Um, and then um, I got also the opportunity uh, to work with Mumra, uh, and which turned into um, a, a full-time job with them. Uh, also, uh, the opportunity to consult for McKinsey & Company through my firm uh, in multiple projects uh, that, that actually continued uh, um, um, until like, I mean, probably the last project that I worked with them was the Jeddah downtown. Um, also the uh, uh, the uh, Expo, Dubai Expo, the building, the Saudi building, Dubai Expo. Oh, really? was one of the uh, you projects worked, that I You worked on that. 
I didn't work directly. I was consultant on that. Oh, gotcha. So right. yeah, in the multiple workshops that they have done uh, to um, uh, finalize the the uh, ideas and, and around the project and, and to make sure that when it's implemented, it's it's it, it will do what it's meant to do. And uh, to, you know, make sure that we are uh, on the right track in terms of like, what is it that we want to tell the world uh, through oh, that project? That was, and Lucian, when we, for the YouTube, for the video, we should have a picture of that because that was a, that, yeah, was cool. that Saudi pavilion at the Dubai Expo was a raging success. And I think something like four and a half million visitors. Right. And, uh, it was and, the most visited um, pavilion basically in the Expo. Uh, and, it, and, and I guess, you know, the success of that, I know because Saudi Arabia is, is, has put in now to host the Expo 2030. Right. And, um, I, I'm sure some of the motivation of that was watching that Dubai Expo and how successful it was, and and uh, and and I think interestingly enough, Lucian, we've done segments on this. Uh, as I don't know if you know, but Russia dropped out, so now it's you know the original five competing ones is down to four. I think Saudi Arabia's uh, applications is probably pretty competitive, but the odds have just increased significantly with Russia out. So. <laughs> Um, Day, did you uh, did McKinsey find you to start consulting work, or did you pitch your services to McKinsey? Well, no, it's uh, I was involved in the uh, quality of life uh, program kickoff um, uh, workshop that been um, uh, conducted in the Kingdom in 2017. Actually, very early 2018, they contacted me in 2017. Uh, and it was through uh, uh, Her Royal Highness Princess Rima bint Bandar. I have met her by chance, and uh, she invited me to the uh, workshop. And during those days, uh, it was multiple day uh, workshop. I think it was like four day, uh, full day workshops. Uh, and um, during those days, I, I worked closely with a um, actually a St. Louis native, uh, uh, Guy Berry. And he's um, he's uh, a vice president in uh, uh, in uh, McKinsey and Company, uh, vice president for planning uh, in the Middle East, and um, so we worked together for the uh, the four days. And and at the end of the four days, uh, uh, he called me later, and he's like, "Are you interested in consulting uh, as a local expert uh, with us uh, at McKinsey?" In you know because we have multiple projects going on, and the first project I believe that I worked with them. Uh, at was the Roshan for the PIF, which okay. is a mixed uh, development uh, housing uh, mixed use, uh, and it's basically on 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 the district district level. It's basically neighborhoods uh, throughout the kingdom in different cities that will achieve the quality of life required uh, uh, in our vision and and what we want uh, our new neighborhoods to look like, but it's uh, mostly starting from a green field. So it's not like um, working on existing um, uh, neighborhoods, but actually selecting areas of cities that are, haven't been developed uh, and then work on that from the ground, uh, like starting from zero basically, and implementing all the ideas around uh, uh, great planning and urban design uh, for neighborhoods and cities. Um, and, you know, exploring with the theories as well, uh, um, trying to understand the successes uh, around the world and, and see if we can implement it uh, throughout the kingdom. And, and, and I mean, I'm pretty sure everyone is excited 
Uh, now, I, I personally know a few people who have uh, applied uh, uh, to buy villas in, in, in Roche and Riyadh and they have got accepted and they are through with the process. And I think they are getting their villas uh, around 2024 uh, and 2023. Roshan is a, Roshan is PI, essentially PIS, uh, public investment right. funds, housing and real estate uh, arm, right. construction, housing, real estate. And, and uh, yes, they have some really large projects that I think they're moving ahead quite quickly on. Right. Um, fascinating. So you've been in the middle of all sorts of things. So, so let's go back. They found you at, uh, at, for the you were invited to at the urban 20 um as well yes um and, and but you're that's is a, your executive team member is that is that relationship still ongoing uh when i am needed for now but too i used to be uh involved heavily uh in the u20 uh until the summit but then after the summit um i'm not sure if there is a new um um like uh, team uh that, that would be picking up or I'm, I'm just not as involved after right. the summit. You're called on. Yeah. 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 They, send out a, they send out a day signal when they need your help. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's talk about the Center for Development of Urban and Design and Planning of Saudi cities. It, it, you, you were, what's the progression of that? It was originally under the Ministry of Municipal and Rural Affairs. Is that correct? True. So it was established in the Ministry of Municipal and Rural Affairs uh, in uh, 2018 uh, by the Minister Abdel Latif Al Sheikh at the time. Uh, and it was a, a ministerial order, basically, and it's connected to His Excellency's office, uh, making sure that uh, the bureaucracy doesn't get in the way of the things that His uh, Excellency wanted to achieve through the center. Uh, and um, uh, after that, um, um, uh, His Excellency uh, Majid Al Qasabi uh, took over uh, Mumra uh, after um, His uh, Excellency Abdul Latif Al Sheikh has retired. Um, and um, I was fortunate also to work uh, during that period with His Excellency Majid Al Qasabi. But then His uh, Excellency uh, moved on into other roles, and I got the chance also to work with His Excellency Majid Al Hagid, who's the current uh, Mumra. Uh, minister as well through the center um, uh, in September of 2020 is when we officially moved to um, um, Development Authority Support Office DASU with His Excellency Ibrahim Sultan, who's uh, I would say the the um, the godfather of, of planning and urban design in, in Saudi or the expert in, in all of that because he has been involved in all. Um, the projects almost, uh, and he's, uh, I think, uh, uh, part of all the committees on, on the big mega projects, uh, all uh, spatial planning and, and development projects in the kingdom. NEOM, PIF, you call it, he's part of that. Um, fascinating. So, so September 2020, the Center for Development of Urban Design, which you are head of, and planning of Saudi cities, sort of became a standalone agency. Um, and... Yeah. Let's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it, it, you know, it's, it doesn't matter really. You know, it's no, but no longer under the uh, municipal. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about what you're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, uh, and you have to first first explain to us what it you know because the key the 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 word is sustainable urban development. 
Mm-hmm. And that's the phrase. And, and you know, you look at the, the, the G20 or the UN, they have like, you know, 17 different sections of, you know, what is sustainable development and, 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 but, you know, and, and so, so what is, what, if you can give us for layman's terms, for people who aren't experts, what, what are the key factors in sustainable urban development? Uh, uh, simply is when you achieve uh, multiple factors at once. Meaning, uh, if you can have a uh, an ease of, of movement, which means public transportation in general and transportation in cities, um, that uh, that won't uh, um, uh, affect the environment by the CO two emission. That's sustainable. Uh, also, that will improve uh, people's life by getting into place from place A to place uh, B uh, safely uh, uh, sh- in a short time and um, in a more sustainable way, which is using a metro or uh, which can um, carry more than one or, or four persons at a time uh, that uh, will achieve that. But then you also have it in multiple uh, layers in planning. You have it in sustainable planning in general, which is having, um, let's say, development that are mixed use, no mono uh, um, uh, uh, use uh, areas, uh, trying to connect the public transportation or the public system in general to, um, to where people or connect people from where they live and work Try to also look at the density in the city and how do you also add that layer into the equation where um, public transportation then become really um, uh, efficient uh, because then you are actually planning exactly where you need the nodes to be and and how do you want the density around those nodes, uh, where it's worth investing on a bus system and a metro system and other uh, uh, modes of transportation, I would say, around the the idea. So it's 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 a lot of things. It's not just having a, a lead certified building. It's it's not about um, it, it's it's more about like the way you plan a city more sustainably and um, the way you can change people's lives and uh, and people' way of, of of living around the city. Uh, and uh, without um, without compromising, where you give them also an ease in life. Um, if it's hot out there, then how do you figure out uh, more solutions to that uh, to convince people to use your public transportation um, where it become uh, actually usable and effective? Uh, because if if you don't resolve other uh, areas in the uh, and the challenge, then no one would use it, and it won't be that sustainable, really, because <laughs> you're just running a whole a transportation system aside uh, to people not even wanting to use it, but actually want prefer to be in their cars and the comfort of their cars. Right. Um, so also to putting this right policies to make sure that you uh, enforce the um, the idea of, of, of sustainability and, and, and public transit and and, and 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 around the quality of planning in terms of um, how you really deal with the um, the existing condition of cities, not just the new or the greenfield uh, cities. Fascinating, especially on that ease of movement, and 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 that seems to be your biggest challenge if you're if you're an urban designer in Saudi Arabia is the existing condition um, right. of cities. And I, there's an interesting study on Saudi cities, and I'll just read this to you. Um, Saudi urban development can be seen through their symptoms. 
and these symptoms would be urban sprawl, traffic congestion, low density development, a loss of place character, which I guess is a common term in, 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 in your, in your uh, expertise. Uh, it is evidence that all major cities in the kingdom, Riyadh, Jeddah, Mecca, Medina, and Dammam, have experienced a rising decrease in urban density while they develop. So you've got sprawl, you've got a decreasing density, and clearly we all know, you know, traffic congestion. So how do you, as you address, when we talked earlier, you aren't necessarily just working in major cities, you're working in any number of places around the kingdom. Um, how do you address this legacy structure that really uh, leads to things that aren't, you can't really be called sustainably attractive? So the solution that we're trying to, we're not sure even if it's going to be the solution, but we hope that this would be um, at least a, a part of the solution that we're hoping for by 2030, uh, is um, something that we call the urban code. Um, but when we say urban code, we're not necessarily talking about uh, farm-based code, which is the U.S. Uh, new urbanism uh, approach into um, um, the new urbanism movement, I'd say. Um, it's not exactly um, a master plan. It's not exactly, uh, it's it's more uh, of, uh, of something that is uh, very special to us and to our problems, where we want to learn from the world, definitely, and the best practices, but then we want to apply it to our challenges and our problems, because we definitely face totally different problems from other countries. What we, our conditions are different. Our way of planning is, uh, even though there are some similarities between uh, large cities in the US, uh, I'd say Houston or like um, LA or, or, or other large uh, cities that are car oriented, uh, there are big similarities between the, the, the countries, but in general, we, we really have our also uh, own challenges and problems that we have to resolve. Um, so can sorry. I interrupt you there? And I, and I, yeah. I don't, I don't yeah. want to derail you because yeah, interestingly enough, the urbanization rate in Saudi Arabia is about, you know, 85%, which is equivalent to the U S and, and Europe. But I think it's fascinating that, you know, you have that number. Let's say, so the, you know, so that's, so the numbers the same, the problem is the same, but you're saying that's like, that, that's not the case. They're different problems. And definitely I'd love for you to explore how those different, you know, on the ground problems. Uh, I think, well, one of the biggest challenges that we have to resolve definitely uh, in order for us to really um, achieve uh, progress on that regard is uh, re, um, or uh, looking again at the urban boundaries or the built, uh, built area boundaries for all cities because we have a boundary that keep extending uh, right. without the, real, the, the realistic expectation of, of having a density if that's what it requires to have uh, sustainable public uh, transportation systems and, and, and mobility, uh, sustainable mobility plans and all of that. Um, so that probably have to be looked at seriously um, if we wanna achieve what we wanna achieve because we, we keep just, Riyadh is, is, is getting larger and larger horizontally. It's gonna be, it's gonna be, Riyadh before long is gonna be, you know, it's gonna be part of Tabuk. I mean, it keeps right. <laughs> if we don't stop, yeah, exactly. exactly. And also, it, it, it's funny because even other cities, like in in the south, let's say um, um, Najran, for instance, 
the urban, the built, uh, uh, or the, uh, the, the built boundary or the urban boundaries for the, um, the city of Najran could actually um, be enough for, for us to build within for the, for the next 100 and 150 years. And I think we won't achieve the density that we think that it's required. Um, so, so looking at that, that's definitely, I, I don't think there is a lot, probably there are conversations. I am not part of these conversations, but this is something that I bring up as, as whenever I have the chance, because you can plan whatever you like and you can fix whatever you like if you don't look at that first and, and adjust those boundaries and making sure that you really restrain the building beyond certain uh, area within I mean, you, you can have boundaries, but it has to have a timeline to that. So in, in 50 years, we can extend to this level or that. And they do it. It's just not realistic what we have so far now for the, the extent amount of the next 50 years, let's say, um, in Riyadh and other cities. Uh, so rethinking that definitely. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. The purpose being, and so I can understand the purpose being to achieve a greater density. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when I tell you the urban code and how we're trying to do this urban code, I think it's 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 the most special to Saudi Arabia, because I think probably it will we will call it the Saudi urban code because it combines both planning and urban design at the same time. Um, since we are we either have regional plans that are not being updated, or we have missing plans, local and regional plans. Um, Mumra used to do their plans on house and it's called structural plan and structural plan really just give you um, a very basic, you know, cookie cutter type of uh, approach where you just have streets, you have your municipal uh, services and then you have your city services, you have your education, um, uh, health and, on, and all of that covered, but it's not necessarily planned on a way where uh, it's something that you you study in, in a certain time and understand your growth and understand the effect of, of such thing. So what we're trying to do now is to have this urban code going, trying to fix what it can fix in the, in the meantime. But at the same time, we're also working on, um, uh, we are tendering for, um, uh, a, um, for uh, a regional plan and local plans for the whole kingdom now, for all mm. the regions. Uh, and we want to probably, because we started the urban code and we tried it in multiple places. So we had a regional urban code that been done in Asir, which was our first, basically, on that level. And it's for Asir region and then Abha city. And then we have one for the Red Sea, uh, which is the area, the, I'll call it the leftover areas of the big or giga projects in the Red Sea coast um, between um, uh, the areas between uh, Amala, uh, Red Sea project and uh, Neom, mm -hmm. which is those uh, beautiful little towns along the, uh, the coast. Um, that code supposedly covering that part, but we come out every time we, we, it comes back on the same challenge, which is a lot of what is required in the code, we cannot really, um, achieve until we get our plans, local plans and regional plans redone or updated or, or done if it's not. Um, and um, so, so we are, we're learning as we go. <laughs> we're doing things, we, we didn't stop. We're just, we're, 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 we're trying our best to understand the situations and what's happening. We're starting, 
we also trying in different scales. So we did uh, Asir, we did Abha, and then we did the Red Sea. And then now we're doing Durma and Mzahmiya, which is an area close to Riyadh. Uh, we call it the, um, the countryside of Riyadh, I would say. Um, so, so multiple scales, multiple approaches, like the one for Durma and Mzahmiya, we're doing master plan and a code as well. Uh, um, so it, it's really, it, we're just trying to, to do it the right way without rolling out uh, an idea, without understanding the implication to, to that idea or the success of that idea. Um, there, there will always be challenges and there will always be things that we couldn't do or, or, or cover. But as long as we're trying to learn from our uh these projects that we have tendered and, and started and the studies are halfway some of them. Um, but we are realizing with the time going that, oh, wait, we're, we cannot do this because we don't have that or the data here cannot support that progress. You know, maybe we should stop and maybe we, sh we should do the, the plans first and then we go back to the uh, codes. Um, we have also another project which is um, a, um, a guidelines throughout the whole uh, kingdom for each region, which is just, um, we wanted to, um, or His Royal Highness actually wanted just to uh, have this um, 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 understanding of, or, or um, not understanding, but actually um, uh, like having enough information on regions and their identity uh, early on, so when all of these projects uh, go on, either the urban code projects or the planning, uh, they have a, a solid start uh, uh, by having those um, guidelines. Like we, we have an understanding of what is really the basics that we need to understand on identities in these regions. Because if you have been to Saudi Arabia, and I'm pretty sure you have. <laughs> yes, did you? Many times. yes. <laughs> um, you would go to multiple cities and they look exactly the same. Uh, if you go to any neighborhood in Riyadh and you start driving, you would think that you are in Abha or Ghassim, or even though Abha is a is a, a is a mountain city, and, right. and if you go to Jeddah, it's a coast city, uh, and if you go to Ghassim, it's just Najd, which is basically like Riyadh. Um, they all um, look the same and feel the same, uh, which is what His Royal Highness is trying to. Um, avoid and rethink about like how 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 is it that a country this diverse uh right. in terms of uh, geography and culture um have exactly the same uh, identity everywhere you go very modern very plastic uh it's 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 a challenge and mm. this is part of what we're trying to do in all of these projects it is fascinating. That's interesting you say that because my question was, I mean, obviously Asir and, and Jeddah and outskirts of Riyadh. And I mean, that's entirely different in identities and, and cultures and habits. But like you say, the, architect, the, the, the design is all similar. And that's what he wants to get to is something that's a little more, uh, to use the terminology, uh, has more uh, place. They've lost, loss of place has occurred. Mm -hmm. um, so when you say tender, so... So your 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 group, I mean, will will come will come in and, and but like tender for for who who would be bidding on these tenders? Um, um, very well, it depends. So we sometimes um, uh, require a consortium of different uh, expertise, uh, but we mainly focus on the spatial planning. 
So um, um, uh, companies that have uh, portfolios on working on uh, scale of a city, scale of a region, uh, urbanism, have uh, done successful projects here and there that we can actually check out and, 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 and know that they will be able to deliver. So um, in the background, knowing the, the challenges also that we have and how do we um, make sure that we, you know, get them uh, up to date on what are the situation uh, in Saudi and how do we approach our uh, projects or changes that we want to uh, achieve in our projects. So mainly spatial planning, but we always require um, policy uh, teams, we require legal teams, we require um, strategy teams, we require, so it depends on the project and the size of the project, uh, there will be uh, a consortium required uh, to work together to make sure that we are achieving what we want to achieve in different projects, different requirements. How does but that... mostly um, it's a, it's a, um, a foreigner um, companies, uh, big companies, uh, uh, Europe, uh, US and other. Interesting. Um, how does your shop uh, and get, you know, because there's huge, huge, you know, Jetta Central, $20 billion projects is huge. Uh, Royal Commission for Riyadh City has grant has just extraordinary plans and any number of projects ongoing. How do you interact with those agencies? Uh, okay, so for Riyadh City projects, which is the Royal Commission, I don't interact that much uh, or the office because it's a Royal Commission. When it's a Royal Commission, it has its own board, its own right. way of yeah, so they 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 don't really um, at least I don't on the project that I'm involved in, uh, except if there is a project that will um, have an effect on on Riyadh city or close to Riyadh city or has you know an implication or it will be affected also by by the fact that it's close to Riyadh. Right. So one of the projects, Burman uh, Zahmiya, we have to we have to be aligned with the uh, Riyadh uh, Commission. A royal Commission, but also we have we require a lot of information from them, from Amana and, and, and other entities, as well as other giga projects like Gidea, because it's adjacent to Gidea. And so it's it required, but it's not an an involvement, an actual involvement. Right. Um, but in, in terms of the urban code, the concept, you know, the urban code, the yeah. conceptual framework, is that is that kingdom wide? Or is that your shop? Or okay, so it started with uh, all the um, because we are DASO, so uh, Development Authority Support Office. Um, not every region in Saudi has a Development uh, Authority, uh, but um, a lot of them now having um, some of them we either testing or we are not sure if it's the right uh, thing to start with a Development Authority for the size for the population or you know the the number of, of people living in that area or that or the challenges um and and the surrounding area so um the the uh the regional and development authorities are now we have i think six we have sorry uh we have uh uh eastern province we have mecca which is mecca have its own royal commission uh, but then we have the region uh and then we have um uh, uh, sorry, Hail, Asir, uh, and we have multiple ones that are coming. Uh, like um, they they announced um, uh, recently offices 
that might be becoming also um, a development authority. And then we have Medina. So these are five. Um, okay, Riyadh was the sixth, but now Riyadh is the Royal Commission. So it's not right. part of the scope. Right. Definitely. And then, so we do, we, we started with doing only codes for, uh, or, or, or like even for the plans, we started with just the regions that are under uh, our office, uh, which is under the development authorities. Uh, but the other regions are required to be done uh, through Mumra. However, we have a lot of, um, of uh, now um, joint uh, uh, work with Mumra. Uh, so all the regional plans and the local plans are really between the Development Authority of Support Office and Mumra. Mumra covering the regions that are uh, under their um, uh, um, uh, governance. And then we are covering the regions under the Development Authorities. But we work together now. It used to be totally different uh, uh, projects, each do their own thing. But now we're, we're more in sync on working together uh, on these projects. That's encouraging. That's critical. I, you know, it's interesting that you're in the process, Saudi Arabia is now in the process of doing this first census since 1992, I think, um, which I assume will return all sorts of really interesting information about Sorry, the, the, what? a census mm. you know you, uh, a national census what's that oh the uh, uh, the, uh, the national spatial uh, strategy the well, nss no i'm not, no it's it's an, a census of actually determining you know the population numbers where people live demographics that sort of thing you know it's it, they haven't done a, a national census i think in in since 92 but i'm not sure um so yeah you have all, all you know census takers are out now you know you know affirming and 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 confirming where people live who lives where and that sort of thing and i and and i assume that feedback will be interesting in terms of urban planners because you'll have a better idea of of how many people are living and where they're living um right what it what can what can a city like Riyadh do uh for example, we, we, we've talked in the past on the 966 about the, how important a decision, the white land decision was, um, because this was, this was key areas of property and urban, and urban space that was, they weren't being developed, and now you can, they, they're available to, for development. And, and so, but the sprawl continues. Um, and part of that, I mean, some of that is, I don't know if you take this into account, but I, I suppose it's part of your thinking. You know, the kind of housing that young Saudis want is a little different now. It's evolving. I mean, the large single-family compounds, multiple multiple-family compounds. Um, you know, those aren't really what's being built now. They're they're apartment units and smaller homes and in more dense communities. So so much is changing. But how do you manage that? How do you how do you how do you stop or slow that sprawl? Oh, I think should we do another a separate show on that? <laughs> right, <laughs> with a room full of like uh, you know VPs from Riyadh, uh, I'd say Royal Commission. Yeah. But um, um, I mean, see. I, I don't know. I, I really don't know. Like, yeah. I don't know what's the answer for the question. I, I mean, I can have ideas, I can have suggestions, but I'm not sure 
what's the actual, what could be the actual solution to such, um, because yes, even though there was um, taxes on the white lands that have been um, issued, like um, uh, to regulate uh, such um, problem that we're facing, especially in Riyadh because of the land uh, value, um, uh, but it's, I don't see it, it it's, it's changing, but slowly. I think a lot of people can afford these taxes. Um, um, and I'm not sure if, I, I don't, I, I remember they have visited us here and they wanted to work with the center on finding, um, uh, which is the, um, it's, a, um, it's a, the company responsible for the white land. It's under the Ministry of Municipal now and housing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they wanted to explore, explore and, and see if we can put expertise together to uh, rethink the, 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 the idea of, of taxes on white lands uh, and see if there will, there will be uh, better solutions to that. Um, uh, I know they, they have, uh, they have uh, uh, four stages to it, and I think uh, they are at stage two now. Mm-hmm. And th- I think the third stage will be uh, to approve uh, a policy where uh, it doesn't have to be that you own uh, 10,000 kilometer of, 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 of land to be taxed, uh, but even if it's divided, so whatever is under your name will be collected in, in general, and then you right. will be taxed on that. Uh, because they, what they face, one of the problems that developers will actually go and, and, and subdivide those, those, those big lands and they get away with the tax uh, requirements that they are supposed to. Um, uh, and it's, 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 it's a big challenge, definitely, but it's, it, it's, I think there's lots of angles to it that it has to all work together in order for it to um, stop the bleeding <laughs> and the sprawling in Riyadh. Yeah. Um, white land, uh, definitely one thing, and urban boundaries or built boundaries is also a big, a real big thing. To, yeah. to rethink it, I, I don't think it's uh, um, it's very um, uh, realistic that we want to um, have this mixed use and, and dense uh, developments around the city if we still allow uh, the expansion of the built uh, or building boundaries to the city. Yes, I mean we 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 focus a lot on Saudi Arabia, and that's something that recurs all the time. In that, that is trying to do trying to trying to meld and bring together you know multiple different goals all at the same time. You know because so many, you know, many different things moving and trying somehow to thread all this together to a, you know a result that everybody wants to see, right. and it's it's always a it's always a complex. Uh, nothing stages at the same time, really. And, and, you know, so it's really a complex, it's never straightforward. And a lot of people like to make it seem straightforward, but it isn't because I have to think uh, part of, part of, for example, the KM Dollar financial district, I, you know, is sort of being repurposed a little bit to have more residential um, than, than originally planned, um, which is a good thing for what you're trying to achieve. Uh, I have to think that, that you know, young Saudis' housing expectations, which tend to you know incline to be more dense, you know, become more comfortable with a dense environment, is good for your planning. Um, but again, this is a these are long term trends. It's not like you can just snap your fingers and make it happen. It's you got to see it unfold. But it's really fascinating to hear you talk about how trying to shape it and and a Saudi urban code, 
and trying to trying to uh, introduce conceptual goals that uh, inform everything that goes on. It, it's 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 really interesting. It's also interesting how you you sort of have to work around and coordinate with these major major like Jetta Central and and the RC Royal Commission for uh, Riyadh City. You know, you work with these. They're ongoing as well. They have plans, but you sort of work with them as also. So to resolve that particular um, um, uh, problem or issue that we're facing, which is coordinating between all these big projects, we have a project called um, Planning Framework for Saudi and uh, for Regional Authority. And basically what we're trying to do with this project, it's not, an, um, it's, it's, it's not a, uh, a built project. It's more of a study or a uh, research understanding um, how do we um, how do we work together as as a, as a um, like a, to, like a, as as one 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 um, not one entity but um, because we all have the same goal, which is to achieve Vision Twenty Thirty. Vision Twenty Thirty have multiple goals, but these goals really um, at the end it's about the quality of life. It's about the GDP in the country. It's about, so, and it's heavily uh, spatial, definitely. And um, we are like, um, we are working, as you said, in a scattered way in terms of like entities planning uh, in, the, in, in their own way. And then we have big projects that are happening. And then we have royal commissions. And then we have uh, Mumra and the Amanas or municipalities. And then we have development authorities and the health sector planning their own uh, hospitals and, and clinics and all of that. And so it's, it's a mix of, of everyone and Ministry of Culture have their own projects uh, within cities um, and, and preservation projects, of course. Um, so we're trying to understand first uh, who's doing what and how are they doing it? Uh, we're not proposing that we demolish everything that we have been doing or to uh, ignore everything and, and suggest a new framework uh, for planning in the kingdom, but we're just saying we want to improve the way we do things uh, in terms of planning and spatial planning. So we just want to understand uh, and we want everyone to be involved. Um, we know that multiple projects in different entities have have uh, have taken place in the past, but be because of the lack of uh, of uh, of uh, evolving all the entities and ministries and, and from the beginning and, and have them uh, as a stakeholder and part of these studies and, and part of the understanding and, 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 and part of the solution uh, uh, that we will come up with uh, at the end, um, uh, it didn't really work well. But if we, well, our, our focus now is to actually work on this planning framework and make sure that everyone is involved, everyone who has a, a role in the planning or spatial planning in, in the kingdom, any entity, any, any ministry, any um, um, you know, um, um, big giga, whatever projects uh, that are happening uh, have to be in the same table uh, together where we start understanding the roles and responsibilities for each of these entities and how do we interact with each other and, 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 and when do we, um, you know, um, cross section with each other because uh, there are a lot of also things like data collection and data management and data sharing and all of that that been done separately for each entity, which it could be brought uh, in together and, and, and in terms of planning and spatial planning. And if there is a, a certain like data center or something to keep all this information where everyone will be informed instead of like uh, having to have 
God knows, six months of, of current state assessments trying to just collect the right data for every project that we do uh, from every other entity. So it, it's more of a like um, uh, not creating something new, but actually working on the system that already exists and improving that system to make it more uh, efficient, let's say. They, did you, how did you get into this? Like what inspired you to get into this field? Like, um, like how, can you tell us a little bit about your journey before you uh, went to college here in the US, how you got into architecture, urban planning and what inspired you to do it? Yeah, so um, for some reason I have grow, uh, grow up wanting to be an architect. It wasn't an option in Saudi Arabia at the time. Uh, of course, now with the, all the changes for the past, uh, say, 15 years or 10 years, uh, now we have architecture schools for girls and, and girls can become architects and they can study architecture in, in, in the kingdom. But at my time, when, when it was my time, there wasn't uh, programs for architecture for girls. And this has always been what I wanted to do. I'm, I'm, I like spatial thinking. I'm, I'm more into... Like, I, I, I'm really interested in the built environment and interested in spatial thinking uh, or, or, or anything that has to do with the spatial, like just even imagining spaces and all of that. So I always wanted to uh, study architecture, didn't get the chance. Uh, I went to accounting in Saudi until I got the chance to get a scholarship, King Abdullah scholarships. Uh, and I went to the U.S. and I um, uh, studied Basically, I, I just enrolled in uh, SIUC for architecture uh, school. Um, and then after that, um, as, I, as I told you earlier, which is the, um, I choose to study in Washu uh, later on because I have already covered the technical part of the architecture field, but now I want to more, uh, to get more into the theory and design theory in general. Um, so I choose multiple schools. I got accepted actually in all of them, but I choose to go to Washington University for different reasons. Uh, one, it was one of the top 10. I think it was ranked sixth in the nation at the time. Uh, second, family reasons. My husband and my son were uh, in, uh, still in Carbondale, Illinois. I wanted a place where it's close, so I, I'm not far from my family. Um, uh, my husband works in the U.S. since then, and he's still working there, actually. Yes, <laughs> he's a, he's a, um, he's a, a data engineer, senior data engineer in Emirates, sustainable energy and uh, utility company in the Midwest. Yeah, so so I got to to uh, study my master's in architecture, but by mistake, or it's just I I wanted to choose one studio. I was put in the wrong studio. I actually fought for that. Like I want, I didn't want to study that. Um, or I didn't want to be in that studio, um, really, like, because I was uh, interested in parametric design, and there was another studio on parametric design, and it was, it was supposed to be my first choice. You have no idea how I, I, I fought against uh, studying or taking that studio, but I had to. Uh, there was no other choice. Uh, so I went ahead, and I took it, um, and uh, I, I, I was fascinated with urban design. I was fascinated with like um, the total of urbanism in general, like the, the city relation to the building and, and the human aspect of it, the, the social aspect of it and all of that. Um, and um, I finished the studio and I went right away to um, uh, the chair of the urban design school. And I was like, 
I, I, I have to enroll in urban design. I, I, I'm, I'm really interested in the field and I didn't know much about it before. And now I, I, I understand more about architecture that's, that uh, I, I have a glimpse of uh, on urbanism uh, in general. And uh, he, he required a lot of crazy things. Uh, and I, it was my finals, but I had to turn multiple things to him. I remember staying up until like, I don't know, four and five in the morning and I have classes at eight and, and submissions and stuff. But I, I, I gave him everything that he asked me to do. Like I, I did everything and he accepted me. So I, I enrolled also in my, as a dual degree. So I enrolled in the uh, urban design masters as well. And I uh, just my graduation was postponed for um, another year, which is fine. <laughs> I, I, I was good uh, and on track in architecture. It, did, it wasn't a big delay, so it was okay. <laughs> so it's fair to say without the scholarship program in Vision 2030, your professional dreams wouldn't have really been realized. They were sort of big breaks for you just in terms of the like just big policy changes that sort of enabled you to, to do what you want to do for a living to like, you know, pursue your dream. Absolutely. Two years before I came back to the kingdom, I cannot even enter the ministry where I worked at. But with the change, like everything has, has been, you know, uh, I, I would have, I studied the architecture and I studied urban design, but I didn't have um, I didn't, I wasn't sure hundred percent that I would be able to practice in Saudi, even though I was fascinated with urbanism because of the, the struggles we have in Saudi Arabia, because of, I've seen our cities, I lived in our cities and I know, oh my God, now that this could be resolved through something, which is urbanism basically. Um, yeah, I'm very thankful. <laughs> so, I mean, you're one of the first women, uh, you know, architects in this modern era in Saudi Arabia and urban designer. And I'm curious because in the United States, there's an issue with half of all architecture students being female and not all architects. It's like a, a vast majority are male that actually pursue a career in the field. Is Vision 2030, which is increasing women's, you know, uh, participation in the workforce, is that seeing, is that happening also in your field as well? Yes, I think so, because it's... Um... I think now it doesn't matter if you are a male or female, probably preferably you're a female because there are targets in Vision 2030 that they want to achieve. So having more women in the for workforce will also help us achieve those targets that we're trying. But uh, I think we are at a point where it's very important to um, make sure that we put uh, um, people who have the, the right education, the right expertise, the right, because we need, we, we don't, we're still short of, of, of expertise. We're still short of, of capabilities in the kingdom. We're, there's, there's still a lot of like scholarship programs that are going on right now. We know that King Abdullah scholarships has stopped, but now there are multiple scholarships programs through different um, ministries. Um, and, and it's all uh, to make sure that we have uh, and we, that we have realized and, and recognized the, the, the need for more uh, capable or capabilities in, in, in certain fields that haven't been covered in the past. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, I'd, I'd say that that probably also supported um, uh, the role of women in the kingdom and in Vision 2030. Uh, of course, and the uplift that we got too as women um, in the kingdom and, and, and they they have um, bathed the the 
the way for us, even though you know that there is a lot of challenges and struggles to um, all of the sudden you have to work with women and all of the sudden we don't, you know, like the, um, I'd say the conversation wasn't there and now, um, but but I, I felt it like for the past five years, things have changed dramatically from when I just got there. Like when I got there, uh, what is she going to do? What is she going to, you know, like, what is she going to add? Like, you know, everything and we don't need, you know, like, but now there is more uh, acceptance to uh, women roles in, 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 in the kingdom and in certain fields that weren't necessarily um, uh, existing before the vision and before uh, the transformation. And, and I guess the last question, if I could ask you, who like, yeah, who, sure. who, what is, um, who has most inspired your personal vision and design? Like, do you have some figures, um, either historical or current that you follow very closely as, um, uh, very influential to you that you think are brilliant and you try to emulate or, um, who, who inspires you? Well, um, in urbanism. Uh, I'd say Young Gale. Uh, and uh, Young Gale, just because of his interest in, 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 um, in, in cities and in, in livable cities and, and cities for people and, and uh, safe public uh, realms for everyone. Day Aldawan, uh, head of the Center for Development of Urban Design and Planning of Saudi Cities, consultant with McKinsey. U.S. educated. What an awesome discussion today, Day. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Let's get to Yellow Richard. What do you think? Saudi. Yellow. I couldn't even get it out. Saudi in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how this started, but it's now its own thing. And now <laughs> a life you know, of its you, own. It is. Every time I do it, it's just like, you know, when you as a kid, you get the giggles in church <laughs> and you couldn't stop. <laughs> we do it. That still happens laughing. to me, by the way. I still start laughing really? in places. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, when, when you, <laughs> church when you, and anything. Yeah. <laughs> you get your, your kids are going to get it and it's going to be hilarious as you're trying to shush them and they just can't stop. <laughs> the Saudi initial public offering of Middle East Domino's pizza franchise has received orders for all shares on offer within hours of opening its books, according to Bloomberg. Alamar Foods, which is 42% owned by the Carlisle Group, uh, is going to offer uh, and do its IPO and is expected to be, the, the, the company is expected to be uh, assessed, um, valued at about $770 million. A significant amount of money, Richard. Investor appetite for local listings remains strong. Um, it's been sort of a setback recently for Saudi stocks. They erased this year's gains on Monday, sort of following the global trend, 18% of, uh, below a high in May. Bargain hunters, of course, stepped in at the end of it to sort of stop the the bleeding there. But I mean, right now, if you look at it, it's and I was unable to really find one. But are there any IPOs that have happened in Saudi Arabia that haven't had their books covered recently? It just seems like yeah, it just seems yeah. like this is the time if you're if you're on the fence about an IPO either in Tadawul or in the Nomu market. If you're if you're thinking about it and you're a company CEO, this is a good time to do it. Markets hit a little blip with the inflation issues and, and general gloomy outlook on the global economy. I mean, it's still, you know, economy, 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 Saudi economy is still expected to grow. 
I love this story. I'll tell you why. <clears throat> what was the word you used in your one big thing? Inosculation? In, inosculation, yeah. Inosculation. I had a couple little factoids about this. So this is Alomar Foods, which is um, a major franchiser for Domino's. They also have Dunkin' Donuts, by the way, none in the U.S. and none in Saudi Arabia, but they have some in Jordan and uh, Egypt and Morocco. But they have um, a lot of Domino's franchises in Saudi Arabia. And they opened the first Domino's in Saudi Arabia in 1992. I mean, Alomar's 30 years old, but they, they, they opened it. Uh, it was one of the first global outposts for Domino's, which uh, has 500 locations now in the Middle East, North Africa, and, and Pakistan. Um, this is Alomar, has 500 locations. <clears throat> Domino's was founded in 1960. I mean, it's in the U.S., in Ypsilanti, Michigan. So it's, an, you know, it's, it's a true blue American company. And here it is. I didn't know this. It's it's been in in Saudi Arabia since 1992. Uh, this is a close relationship. And and I'm, the Carlisle Group, which invested in Alamar uh, in 2011, is 42% of Alamar Foods. Is I don't know what they paid for in 2011, but they're going to come out of this with a a really nice profit. As I mentioned, this it's going to be valued around 770 million dollars. That is the Alamar Foods in general. Um, but this is definitely one of those unseen inosculations below the root, below mm -hmm. the surface, roots growing together. Alomar has been working with, uh, with uh, Domino's for, you know, close to 30 years, over 30 years, and Dunkin' Donuts as well. So uh, it's an interesting story. Domino's is so good. I grew up on Pizza Hut as like the, the uh, you know, the, the chain pizza restaurant that we would go to. There was one in McLean, Richard. Um, and I, I don't think it's there anymore, but um, Domino's rules. And actually the last time we were in Riyadh, they were just getting Uber Eats going. And um, I remember getting a bunch of Domino's uh, oh, to you? the hotel room. Yeah. And, you know, probably came back about 15 pounds heavier. We um, went to, a, what's the pizza place we went there? Dang it. It's a local pizza one. Uh, we've done I, it before, but anyway, I could go for some pizza right now, to be honest with you. I read yeah. the story. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, there's an, another inosculation right there below the surface, um, a non artificial grafting of relations, um, <laughs> yellow number two, Russia, Saudi relations are quote, as warm as the weather in Riyadh, unquote, the kingdom's energy minister, Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman told media on Thursday after a meeting in Russia with the country's deputy prime minister. This is according to a report in Arab news. That's pretty warm, Richard. At the time of this recording, it's about 104 <laughs> degrees in Riyadh, 40 degrees Celsius. Would not feel like I'm going out on a limb calling that not warm, but hot. Anyway, uh, the prince made a surprise appearance at the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum while not being listed on an official schedule. Guess what? Saudi Arabia and Russia are friendly. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, you know, if, if so, if you're Saudi Arabia, and I, so if you're OPEC, and 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 for many of the countries, you know, the uh, revenues from fossil fossil fuel sales and and crude and natural gas and other things are the lifeblood of their economies have been historically. Um, they're keenly interested in trying to manage the global price. You know, you can argue all you want if it's a, if it's a uh, uh, monopoly, um, 
but it, listen, you know, looking at it from the OPEC, so Saudi Arabia, leading uh, member of OPEC, from their perspective, fine, we're going to do everything we can to try and control our primary source of revenue and, and, and not have it, you know, tank. And also we know not have it get too excessive. So, so when you're looking at OPEC, OPEC is 50% of global oil exports. Saudi Arabia alone is about 15 to 17% of global oil exports. Russia's number two at 11.6 of global exports. So, so why not? Why not bring in, you know, uh, Russia as part of OPEC plus, especially this was in descent in 2016 when, when, when uh, oil prices have crashed uh, from OPEC's perspective, they lost all control of the markets to us shale. Why not? You know, let's reach out and then do OPEC plus and bring in Russia. And it's been a very successful partnership Had a little bit of a tiff in, in 2020, which was all resolved within a month. <clears throat> um, but, uh, you know, the, again, I, you know, we, you know, the United States should act, act in its own best interests, as should every other country in the world. It's wonderful when these interests are aligned, and it's and it's you know a lot of effort should be put into it, and and compromises should be made. But um, it, you know, it's in Saudi Arabia's own best interest to maintain a working relationship with Russia, and. But, you know, so, it, you know, it, it, if it's this is an interesting phrase, you know, to say it's as uh, warm as the weather in Riyadh. And but I think it's probably the case, you know, certainly on the oil front. They want to keep this relationship going. I should also say um, nobody can predict the markets right now. Saudi said I'm very cautious, extremely cautious. It's fluctuated wildly in, in, in just over in the last 18, 18 months. Uh, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with China. We don't know what's going to happen with inflation. The economy is slowing down. You know, in a, in a minute, Saudi Arabia just, I mean, OPEC just increased its 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 monthly gain by 50%. It was about basically a little over 400,000 barrels a month uh, per day, a month increase, which was scheduled through August. They upped that uh, a little over 600,000. But again, they don't know what's going to happen to the market. And, you know, they certainly don't want to be in a position where we go, okay, we'll open the spigots and all of a sudden the economy crashes. Price crashes as well. It's just not in their interest. So they're going to, they're going to behave responsibly in that regard. And the reason, the reason I go on about this is because so many, you know, U.S. commentators and media are surprised, stunned, amazed. Why doesn't Saudi Arabia do exactly what we want them to do? It's not entirely in their interests, so they'll they'll try and split the split the difference, maintain both sides. It's what countries do. Is my rant over? No, I mean I, I think that's really good. That's actually in my <laughs> notes here to to sort of focus on the self interest part of this because this really brings it to light. I mean, if you're Saudi Arabia looking at the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you're saying this is probably not the best thing to happen. Although oil prices have gone up as a result. Um, and maybe if you're a Saudi or a leader in Saudi Arabia, you don't like what you're seeing there. Um, you have seen a lot of the world in turmoil as a result. Um, I mean, inflation, food prices, like the knock on effects are all the way around the world and back again. Um, but I think it's really important, as you said, Richard, to just understand that Saudi Arabia looking at the invasion of Ukraine and then looking at the strength and how much effort and the value of the alliance with Russia and OPEC plus is you know, to get Saudi Arabia to cancel Russia as the West has done, that is a massive ask for Saudi Arabia. There's a lot at stake for them doing that versus 
you know, the United States doing it. Well, we didn't really have the warmest relationship with Russia to begin with. And after the invasion of Ukraine, those are our values in the United States, or at least we like to say they are. The policymakers say they are. In Saudi Arabia, it is a completely different calculus. And I think it shouldn't be surprising to us that this is happening at least. Yes, uh, agreed. But we always constantly seem surprised by it. Um, and, and you know, there, it may, when, when push comes to shove at some point, and, so, and that's one of the conversations that will be had in, in Jeddah in July, is, you know, we, the U.S. wants these Gulf states and our, our partners to choose us and to throw in their lot with us. We have to give them more compelling reasons to do so, updated reasons to do so. Um, but again, no, no country worth its salt, no diplomat worth his, his, uh, you know, his sash, uh, is gonna, is gonna cut off relationships that might be of real value in the, in, you know, in the event that something else might, you know, fill the void. You know, the whole point of these, these international relationships is to keep them, use them, build them. And help you, you know, try and try and create a situation where you have fallbacks and you and you have redundancies and and you know, so this is something Saudi Arabia makes sense for Saudi Arabia to do. And just to sort of add on that, I mean, you kind of mentioned this, and I think that's it's a really great point. You know, oil prices are really high right now. You know, and to the U.S., they're very very high. You know, depending on who you're asking, they're high or they're higher. But you know, the reality is, is that about two years ago, they were negative on the WTI. They were way down. And what happens when that, when oil is very low, it becomes very easy in the West to start talking about climate change and weaning off fossil fuels. So if you're Saudi Arabia or another oil producer, you're saying, okay, oil prices are low. You guys are going to, all you're going to do is say, we have to stop buying oil because it's so cheap and it's plentiful and there's no reason economically to get off of it. When oil prices are high, you're mad at us for not, you know, taking to task Russia over the over the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It, it's just sort of like there isn't a good side of this, you know, for Saudi Arabia, for any other oil producer. So, I mean, they're sort of thinking longer term than just these three to six months or the next six to 12 months. They're thinking about oil's price in the next decade, two decades. They're also working to go green by 2016, 2060, excuse me. So, I mean, there's just a lot going on here, but for them to sort of react to everything that America wants instantaneously, I don't see why they would do that. But I mean, you know, anyway, it's, it's an interesting story. It's, uh, you know, yeah, there's a lot know, to get into here. Yeah. We quoted, I, I pulled a quote from Richard Haas, uh, head of the uh, Council on Foreign Relations. Said, uh, and he writ, wrote in the strategist last week. And, and in it, he talked about the U.S. dealing, you know, the, the trip and, and the handshake with uh, Biden handshake with MBS. And he talked about the imperative that realism must trump idealism with regard to U.S. US foreign policy. Uh, it's the same thing for Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I think, you know, they, they cringe at the invasion of Ukraine. They see it as wrong. I'm sure it's unjust. Uh, they see it as illegal. They see it as, you know, extremely unfortunate in that it, it's, it's uh, you know, sort of put a halt and a freeze, a damper on a recovering global economy after the pandemic. It's just an ill-timed, uh, really uh, not well-thought-out adventure by Vladimir Putin. Mm-hmm doesn't mean that Saudi realism should be trumped by idealism. I mean, it's the realistic thing to do is to maintain the relationship despite your disagreement with that decision to go into Ukraine and any other number of, of, of disagreements. We have to remember Saudi Arabia had you know, zero interest in doing anything with, with communist Russia for, because of it's an atheist country. 
<clears throat> and uh, one of the reasons, you know, obviously they were active in supporting the Mujahideen in Afghanistan and pushing back and, and being a U.S. ally. Part of that was, again, the, you know, the, the communist uh, athe- atheism. They got past that, again, because realism has to trump idealism for every country. Mm-hmm. Yellen number three, Egypt and Saudi Arabia signed 14 agreements valued at close to $8 billion during a recent visit to Cairo by Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, according to Ashark al-Assad. Uh, Majid al-Kassabi, Saudi Minister of Commerce, announced that there were agreements that cover the fields of renewable energy, oil infrastructure, and cybersecurity. Yeah, Dr. Majid al-Kassabi flew from D.C. to Egypt, I think, to meet from from the visit we just talked about, to meet uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Other deals involved at the development of the uh, excuse me, other deals involved include the development of the multi-purpose terminal at Egypt's Damietta port and a $150 million, quote, pharmaceutical city by Egypt's Farco Pharmaceuticals in Saudi Arabia. So yeah, just sort of like we were talking about, Richard, There's there was a big political, diplomatic sort of, there was a lot of meaning behind these visits this week, but there was also a lot of money behind these visits and a lot of... Um, bilateral trade deals going on. And, um, you know, it's, it's very common for, uh, you know, a head of state or a de facto head of state or a top leader in, in, in a state to visit somewhere and have some deliverables and say, okay, well, we've got, you know, a hundred billion in MOUs or whatever it used to be, um, big announcements because it just shows that, Hey, look, there's future stuff here. So, um, yeah, just, just interesting. Egypt, Saudi relations are, at all time highs, for sure. I, I mentioned the one big thing, Egypt and Saudi Arabia are close and it's very important for Saudi Arabia that that be the case. I mean, on top of the, culturally, Egypt is preponderant in the region and, and you know, a lot, of, it's funny, you know, the, the cinema opens in Saudi Arabia. One of the surprising things is how well, it's not surprising, it's surprising to maybe Westerners, you know, some of the leading, leading uh, offerings are Egyptian movies, same thing in TV. I mean, this is a this is a country that Saudis look to in many ways, but also strategically. I mean, it's a country of 100 million plus. It's a country with a significant military force. Three million Egyptians work in Saudi Arabia. Uh, Saudi Arabia and Egypt have been on the same page, uh, you know, uh, diplomatically with regard to their aversion and worry and concern about political Islam and the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, so in the regional context, you know, Saudi Arabia has been very, very eager and ready to make sure to, to protect in, uh, Egypt and help underpin it financially. In March, the Saudi Arabia deposited $5 billion in Egypt's central bank. Um, and there's more where that came from. Obviously, there's these, these, these agreements, um, uh, again, are part of strengthening the relationship, a relationship that's important to Saudi Arabia and very important to Egypt, uh, especially when now it's being sort of buffeted by by high grain prices and the economies dealing with inflation. I should also add, it's it, you know, it's sort of, you know, with Neom, Neom is going to be Neom is going to be right there at the corner of of Jordan and Egypt, and. Um, and these relationships are, are important in and of themselves, but they uh, there's an added element there where if you're you're building this huge, uh, extraordinary uh, greenfield project, you want to have good relationships with the immediate neighbors, and they are immediate neighbors. 
Yeah, and then, of course, we, we have talked about it a lot on the show, but the transfer of those two islands as well from Egypt to Saudi Arabia. I mean, if you're Saudi Arabia, it's a great point about Neom. You really want your next door neighbor to the 500 you know, billion dollar quote unquote city that you're building to not be a failing economy because that just directly affects you. So, yeah, um, uh, so yeah, you just, you know, it's, it's, it's just, uh, it's good in Saudi Arabia's self-interest to do that, but it's also a good neighborly thing to do. Yeah. And, oh. and that's, that's, I think that I, I think you're right when you characterize it's, it's, it's a really close relationship right now. Mm-hmm. Yellow number four, Richard. Saudi Arabia ranks first in the Arab world for scientific research. Saudi Arabia's education topped the list of Arab countries and ranked 30th internationally in the British Nature Index for evaluating countries, universities, and public and private institutions for the year 2022 in quality of scientific research, reported the SPA. I don't have much to add here. I I will say this. You know, the, you know, the U.S. News and World Report, top universities in the U.S. is always a big deal when it comes out. And but what they found over the years was all these universities and colleges started working to the metrics, you know, trying to sort of game that the survey and that sort of thing, because it became so influential. Um, my point here is not. My point here is really that. At the end of the day, it's hard to fully understand the details of what went into this ranking for us laymen. Obviously, the people doing this, they could tell you uh, chapter and verse, and, and I'm sure it's very quantitative and rigorous. But what I do know is, as Saudi Arabia is trying to up the caliber of its universities and its education system in general, and but universities in particular, uh, it's getting a lot of accolades and recognition. Now, and so I'm going to just name three. So just in April, uh, the UK Times Higher Education Impact Rankings in the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals for year 2022. Again, Saudi Arabia went from three universities listed in 2019 to 22 this year. In April, again, uh, in the World University Rankings, um, Saudi Arabia went from nine in 2019 ranked to 14 in 2022. And, and in May, in the uh, SCI uh Ranking, uh, it moved from the, to the 22nd globally in number of research outcomes uh, when it was ranked 32nd in 2018. So I guess my point is, is these metrics do mean something to Saudi Arabia because this is how they key a lot of their Vision 2030 goals. They find metrics, and I think in particular, the, uh, the Times Higher Education one is one they look at. Um, so what you're seeing you know, you can argue with you can argue with the the how things are done or what they emphasize or this or that, but there's a whole slew of ranking systems, university and education ranking systems that are reflecting significant upward movement by Saudi institutions. Um, and it's you know it's sort of across the board, so that reflects really well, I think, on the general direction of of these universities and the Saudi educational system. Yeah, it makes me think of the time, Richard, we visited my boy Saad at uh, Al Majma University, um, which, you know, was one of the most incredible uh, experiences. Um, that was fun. Obviously great to see Saad, but also incredible to see Al Majma University, which really wasn't there, you know, yeah. a decade or two ago, and then was being built in Al Majma, Saudi, Saudi Arabia, which is, you know, about two hours north of Riyadh. Um, I hope I have the direction correctly. Yeah, that's right. Um, but uh, just, I mean, and then just built from the ground up, brand new 
impressive university with, um, you know, uh, climbing in the rankings of higher learning, obviously hires really talented people inside and, and others, and was just sort of mind blowing to see, you know, they're not just, it's not just lip service that they're trying to invest in education. They're actually building internationally respected universities from the ground up. Takes time to do that. Takes time to build a reputation, but, um, yeah, I mean, this is good. And, you know, this, it, there's only more of this stuff coming, in my opinion. So and get, getting recognized, that's, that's, uh, that's a peak key. So like I said, you know, this is, we don't know the details because we're not experts in the field, but it's clear there's a whole, you know, it's clear that they're doing something different because it's getting, uh, it's getting recognized in any number of, by any number of metrics in any number of organizations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were flying the drone, Richard. I remember it got lost and we were like, well, it's become self-aware. It's just going to fly away now. <laughs> don't know if it's coming back. Um, a lot of fun. But yeah, very good. A good one. I think you're up now for number five. Am I right on that? Yep. All right. Number five. Yep. Yellow number five. Brooks Kepka keeps the drip of golf defectors from the PGA to Saudi Arabia's PIF-backed Live Golf Tour. Uh, joining Abraham Answer, Aussie Abraham Answer, this week, uh, last week, Brooks Kepler is one of the first players. Was one of the first players to announce the rival league for only four to eight players. Is now the latest PGA Tour player to sign on with the with the Live Golf Series. The Associated Press has learned. So, Richard, it's so funny because we, you know, we're we're going to talk about golf for a little bit. Everybody, sorry, but. You know, when we first started following this story, which was the first week it happened, um, was after we launched the 966 podcast. And then uh, we, we were following it fairly closely and it built up to, you know, about a month ago where it looked like they would not get a single golfer, like not a single professional golfer would join the PIF backed live golf tour. And we said, you know, hey, that's OK. As long as this thing is well funded, you get it out the door, you have these big paychecks, hopefully some young golfers join. What has happened has been nothing short of incredible disruption in the sport of golf that has literally everybody following professional golf talking. And what has been interesting, Richard, is sort of to see the opinions evolve, to sort of see almost half of all commentators on Instagram and Facebook defending the players and blasting the PGA's commissioner, Jay Monahan, for sort of handling this in a flat-footed way and saying, you know, with some hubris, you know, this is the this is the league you play in. If you have any self-respect, I know you don't get paid what others do. And the players just said, hey, you know what? Like, we're going to take the money. And I think that what is happening now with Live Golf, Richard, you and I both have, have sort of said this is a, a really good chance for people to whip up on Saudi Arabia. And that's true. But I think what Live Golf is doing has never really been done quite this way before just a total startup new league tons of money behind it in this sport it's so cool to watch i think we have 20 of the top 100 uh players from the pga tour now with live golf who knows what these events are really going to look like especially when they kick off here in the u.s shortly but yeah i mean these players you know big mistake from the pga to not treat them as the independent contractors that they are, they're probably now going to sue the PGA. Um, just unbelievable, the story. I mean, truly. Well, it's um, like we said last week, it's glad to finally get underway. Yeah, it's a ruckus. Um, currently, eight of the top 50 uh, have moved over to, ranked players have moved over to live. 
Um, I mean, the, the, I guess the, the most telling thing is how, uh, and I'm not sure, I, I haven't heard a lot of, in, in the U.S., a lot of a positive comment on this. It's still very negative overall, I think. That's from my, my experience. Uh, but the telling thing is the PGA is just scrambling. They've, uh, they, the Monaghan just had a players only meeting before the TPC, uh, a recent, uh, the recent tournament, upcoming tournament, um, and announced that purses at eight existing events will increase to an average of 20 million. Um, they're, you know, they've changed the schedule. They're trying to be more adaptive to, to players' preferences. Uh, they're going to do a few, I think, three international events with limited fields for top 50 players and FedEx comp points in which there won't be any cuts and prize money, you know, so everybody gets a cut. Um, they've already got the player impact program in place, put in last year, I think, which is worth 50 million. So basically they're scrambling. And, 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 and this is the thing I think, I think actually think Greg Norman proposed the world super league back when he played mm-hmm. and he was shut down by Tom Fincham, who I think was ahead of PGA at the time. And, and obviously some of that resentment is what drives him now. Um, as I said before, I think the you know live just needs to go about its business. It's it's got a you know it's got an announced schedule through twenty twenty five. It's got money. It's got it's got a compelling uh, financial allure for a lot of players who are disgruntled. So the PGA is trying to deal with this. It's the first time I think this is what got Phil Mickelson in trouble. Was you know he 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 sort of cynically used live to to leverage his own interests. And it got him in trouble, but now he's on the live tournament. And, and let's face it, there are some disgruntled players that have moved over to the live tournament, but they're disgruntled for a reason. Um, and so we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. I, I, you know, just keep playing, keep plugging, do the work. It's clearly, as I've said before, a real threat to the PGA, specifically the non-majors. A lot of this comes down to, as we know, they, the live players are allowed to play in U.S. Open. They've now been allowed to play in the British Open. Mm-hmm. A lot of this will come down to the Masters, which is the granddaddy, the big, the big kahuna. Mm-hmm. The Masters says, yeah, come along. We don't want to do this without significant numbers of the best players in the world. It doesn't make sense. It's a major. Um, that, that really uh, empowers those players who are not happy with the PGA and not happy with the schedule, not happy with the payouts. If they feel like they can go and do a, a competitive uh, tour, still do the majors. And, you know, we'll see that, you know, they've also live is also put in to, to try and have live tournaments qualify for FedEx points. So, uh, you know, it's all finally underway. We're all dealing with it. I think like you said, it's a, like I said, it's a big ruckus because it's finally out there and then they have to deal with the reality of live tournament. And we'll see, we'll see live tour. Let's see how it works out, but it's a threat and it's a really real threat as we've talked about to these non-major tournaments. Yeah. I mean, I just don't see them. I mean, and, and I could be wrong cause I'm not, you know, fully immersed in the, in the golf world, but I don't see the upside for the masters in keeping the live golfers out. They're not part of the PGA. It's its own standalone tournament. It also happens to be one of the most prestigious and sacred um, events globally in, in the world of sporting. It's the hardest ticket to get. You got to get onto a waiting list. It's, I mean, it's, it's highly watched. It's such an incredible production. So I don't see why they would, they would go inside with the PGA and say 20 of the best world's golfers can't come and play with us. What is in it for them, for them to do that? 
Um, and maybe maybe you maybe you know or, or I'm missing something here, but it just seems like if I'm a if I'm organizing a major tournament, the last thing I'm going to do is say, "Hey, Jay Monahan, you totally messed this up, and now you have two golf leagues, and you want me to say that." these players can't come play that just weakens my tournament i'm interested in the tournament that i'm hosting and that is you know the masters would be the next big one after the british open has already made the decision so um i mean yeah this is just such an interesting story and um it will be interesting too to see what type of league uh rule changes stick and what fans like you know they're they're billing live golf as golf but louder i think that's interesting to a lot of fans who are a little bored and a little put off by how routine and sleepy some of this coverage seems to them. So um, anyway, we could we could go on and on about this. We should get someone from uh, the golf world on the podcast at some point, Richard, maybe after some of the dust settles, but uh, very interesting story, at least to us. Yeah, I think it, I think it needs to shake out a little bit and then we mm-hmm. can come back and revisit it because it, it, there's some shaking out that's going to go on. Yellow number six. On the 7th of June, almost 25 days before the Hajj, the Saudi Arabian government has announced new Hajj rules and regulations that oblige the citizens of the US, UK, Europe, and Australia to register for the annual pilgrimage via a government website, Motawif. I hope I'm saying that right. Chances are I'm not. <laughs> this online portal has been designed to give Western Muslims visas based on the results of an automated lottery system. Cool. This was a big deal and it's a big change. Interesting that they, that it was done just so shortly before the Hajj. Uh, Hajj starts July 7th. Um, and essentially what it says, so typically, you know, if you're, if you're uh, a Hajji or uh, doing your Umrah or doing the Hajj, you engage with a local travel agent and you arrange for it and they do that and, and you go and you, you know, you do this. And you do the hajj. The whole the, now the now you go through this mutawif. If you're again, if you're not a Saudi, if you're um, overseas, and you go through the mutawif uh, website to first apply to see if you're in the lottery, but also if you if you get the lottery and you have and every country has a quota, and we'll talk about that a little bit. If you get the lottery, and then you have um, an opportunity to choose among packages, you know silver, gold, platinum, I guess, silver starting at uh, just under $6,000, platinum, you know, starting at just under 10,000. Uh, and these packages include flights, accommodations, domestic transportation, catering, and, 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 you know, depending on the length of stay, the cost goes up or down. Um, but it's a brand new system. And I think, you know, this Saudi Arabia instituted it uh, in part because they, they trying to avoid fraud, trying to, to deal with uh, health issues, uh, you know, trying to to sort of regulate and and better uh, formalized processes. I mean, it it put a bunch of travel agents, uh, slews of travel agents in many many countries out of business because a lot of a lot of travel agents make most of their their money uh, on these pilgrimages, you know, Umrah and Hajj. Um, so it's been it's been disruptive, and we'll, and and the first time you know the, I think the Mutaif when the website opened the first night it crashed, it's back up and running now, and and they and they seem to be working. But so for example, if these these are Mutaif, the organized flights in order for you to get there from the U.S. and the U.S. has and in terms of its quota to do this 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 Hajj, the U.S. has uh, I think nine thousand ninety five hundred 
and they have to they have to depart to Saudi Arabia either from uh, New York or, or Washington D.C. So you got to find your way there and then get over there. So it's a big it's a big deal. I mean, it's a big change, and maybe it'll be better. Maybe it'll be better regulated. Maybe you'll have fewer uh, inconsistencies, less fraud, uh, a generally more higher quality product and experience for for folks. Um, but it's this is the first go round. They're giving it. They're giving it a shot. Big websites like this, when they launch with millions of people potentially going to visit them, almost usually always collapse. Like I, I'm thinking <laughs> yeah. about the ushealthcare.gov website, which you know is a great idea and was very cool, but um, you know, uh, it just this is the way this are. This is a really good step forward in the right direction for Saudi Arabia for sure. Well, you you think, and you know, the politics of the Hajj are enormous, so you, there's always a lot of criticism. And, and just doing the quotas, I mean, they did a million this year. And again, they're trying to be reasonable. They did a million non-Saudis. First year, full year back after the pandemic. So they're tr- still trying to control it a little bit, manage it. You know, and there's requirements. You know, you have to be under 65 years old, vaccinated against COVID-19. You know, negative PCR tests taken uh, just before departing for the kingdom. So there's still a lot of, of restrictions in place. But... Um, Again, like I said, it's it's a political thing, and, and it's tough tough to assign quotas. So, for example, it's a million. I mean, the, the highest number assigned is Indonesia, which makes sense because it has over two hundred million uh, Muslims. Uh, India and, and Indonesia is a hundred thousand. India is just under eighty thousand. Um, Pakistan, eighty one thousand. Uh, so. You know, Turkey, 37,000. But, you know, the Emirates, 2,800. Obviously, Emirates is small. Yemen, just under 11,000. So all these things are fraught and political. And, you know, when you're running something that's gargantuan and enormous and meaningful and and, uh, emotional as this, uh, you're going to run into problems. But like you say, this may may help eliminate inefficiencies and and, uh, fraud and, and make the experience better for for Hajis coming to to Saudi Arabia. Perhaps the third hardest working man in Saudi Arabia is the minister of Hajj and Umrah, which, uh, you know, seems to me like one of the biggest, most difficult things to do in the whole world. So, you know, I didn't even know this. When we talked with Day, she said that she met uh, Dr. Majid Al-Kasabi when he was acting minister of Umrah in <laughs> <laughs> 2019-2020. I didn't even know this. That's yet another job that 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 man had. Just incredible. Incredible. Um, and good to see him this last week. Uh, Richard, <laughs> let's put a fork in this one. Yes, um, indeed. This, I'm glad you've got your power back. Everything's right with the world again. Oh, Thank man. you to everybody for listening to us again. All this stuff goes out as segments. We sort of trickle them out a little bit on YouTube so we don't just flood your inbox for our subscribers. But um, subscribe to us wherever you get this. And um, Richard, thank you very much. Excellent. Thank you for being patient, Lucian. We, this was just had a lot of jumping and dancing and making it happen, but it happened. It happened. It always does. You can set your watch to this show. I'll see you next week. Ha, 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 ha.